The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least I'm kind of sad that we don't have that for posterity on YouTube. Oh, Come and we're live. It is Monday, March 28th, 5.03 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh... We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Nicholson Price back on the show. Uh, and we are, yeah, uh, Ben, oh, I should mention, Ben has COVID. Uh, ben, after after 614 episodes and two years exactly of In Lieu of Fun, Ben succumbed to COVID. Um, and he is, uh, he is nursing a bad cold feeling symptoms. Um, but apparently he's doing better, but you should maybe message him and tell him how much you love him because people just generally like that kind of thing. And yeah. Uh, wait, ha- wait, have you ever had COVID, um, Kate? Me? No. Yeah. No. No, yeah neither have I. So we, has, Gen- has, has, Gen- has Genevieve? No, I don't think so. So, so. so Ben's definitely the loser here. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> like the, well, yeah, we'll make sure to point that out to him later. Yeah, um, yeah. Because <laughs> you know if it were in reverse, he would do it. To, he would to, be mo- yeah, he would be mocking yeah, us. He, he would be mocking us anyway. Yes. Yeah. Um, um, so just, tell I, me, just, just tell me when we're live. And Oh, wait, we are live. Oh. Oh yeah, you're joking. Okay, sorry. Anyways, sorry. Uh, that is just. Um, anyways, we. Uh, I just oh, put the paper in the chat. Yeah, We're but before about- before that, can I just can I just say, did any? I saw the most unbelievable thing last night in the Oscars. Um, so, Chris Rock makes this like joke, and then Will Smith, like, swear to God, this goes up and smacks. Well, uh, um, um, Chris Rock. No, 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 you should totally check it out. It's unbelievable. I mean, I, I, I I don't know why. (laughs) Nichols is terrified right now. Um, at 10 o'clock at night, I texted the, yeah. I can't tell if you're trolling or not. Like I've seen you on Twitter. Okay. All right. Of course, I'm so sorry. It's Scott. I, I have not been on in lieu of fun with you, Scott. Okay, that's right. I have that's not right. recognized that in, in this, as in everywhere else, you are principally a troll. I I, I should get it. I, 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 by the way, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I will say that at 1030 at night last night, knowing that Ben and Scott were asleep, I texted the in lieu of fun chat and was like, <laughs> you guys are going to wake up in the morning and go absolutely crazy when you see the memes that are coming out of the internet right now around this like oscar moment yeah that and, was like, turn yeah up. Tw- that was like twelve thirty eight. you texted oh right sorry yeah that was late sorry <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> I'm just i saying, was like but... very much enjoying i was very much enjoying it was like a peak internet moment it was just like the whole internet was like just talking about this was really fun anyways um also really fun is talking about ai and humans in the loop uh Nicholson has a new paper that he's co-written with Margot Kaminsky and Rebecca Krutoff, who are 
uh, uh, Rebecca is an expert at, she's a professor at Richmond and she is uh, an expert in autonomous weapon systems and the law of war. Um, and Margot Kaminsky is a professor at Colorado and she is an expert in privacy and AI and robotics. And Nicholson needs no introduction because he's been on the show many times, but Nicholson is an expert in patents PhD in biology, uh, general all around smart person and very clever and has tons of great ideas. And this paper, I have to say, because I'm friends with both Margot and Rebecca and Nicholson, I was so pleased at this dream team. And I was telling Scott right before we got started that I was, I'm not all the way through it. I have to be totally honest. I'm like part, but like just at a really wonderful level, I'll, I'll, have, I'll start with you explaining it to the audience and like the simplest way possible. But I just want to give you a compliment and say that like, this did not disappoint. It was the like your, your unique perspectives and expertise like come together really, really well and draw out like a very central and fundamental framework. And I think that it's just going to be a super I mean, it already is a really important piece. Um, yeah. And so I'm excited to talk about it today. Yeah. So I confess, I did not, I didn't, I did not do the reading. For today, um, sorry. So, could you could you um, get? I know, I know. It's a, it's a, but we we don't cold call on the show. Um, so <laughs> maybe you could just tell us about the the article because it sounds super interesting. Yeah, of course. So first off, thanks so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be back. Um, uh, second off, I should really just say working with Rebecca Krutoff and Margot Kaminsky has been fabulous. Um, part of what's so much fun about a project like this is coming to edit, coming to the, the space from very different places, um, having quite different priors, which is uh, something I really enjoy. So this is about algorithmic systems. And, you know, Rebecca comes to this from the context of killer robots and drones and weapons that kill people autonomously. I come to this from the context of medicine. And Margot comes to this from the context of kind of con from content moderation and First Amendment and internet and stuff like that. And so we just have really different priors about what the world is like and what algorithms do to it. I look and I think, God, medicine is a total mess. There's so much wrong. So few people can get care, relatively speaking. Care is so limited and there are so many things that are just problematic that we don't know about. So algorithms have huge upside. Um, when you're looking at this in the context of killer robots that might go wrong and shoot a lot of people, um, your priors about kind of what sort of errors we should tolerate are a little bit different. Anyway, that said, uh, this piece is really about how we should think about humans in the context of algorithmic systems, right? AI is being used already in lots and lots of different contexts. As I said, content moderation, robots, killer robots, medicine, benefits, fraud determination, government association, crime prediction, sentencing, you name it, AI is either there or starting to be there. But AI systems have lots of problems, right? They make mistakes, they're biased, they're problematic, people don't like being judged by machines. Um, all sorts of issues come up with this. And it turns out a pretty common, so there's one view of this is to say, let's have law for AI. And the EU has a new AI Act, which is gonna regulate AI. And people are saying it's the first law that regulates AI. And whoa, this is a new big deal. How do we, how do we think about this? Uh, and our paper, like the descriptive part of it is really saying, it turns out there's already a pretty significant law of AI. And that's the law of humans in the loop. 
which is to say often, sometimes frequently deliberately, sometimes accidentally, uh, but often regulators or people governing systems, algorithmic and not, say, here's a problem with this system or a potential problem with this system. Let's stick a human in the loop to fix it or to make sure that problem doesn't happen. So the EU AI Act talks about algorithmic oversight or human oversight of high risk algorithms. Um, there are questions about when you have to keep a doctor in the loop of a diagnostic system or making sure there's a human soldier to pull the trigger or set the target or whatever. Like putting a human in the loop is a pretty common solution or pretty common intervention. And the basic argument of the paper is it turns out when you stick a human into an algorithmic system to fix the system, you don't get a fixed algorithmic system. What you get is a new system, which is a hybrid system, a human machine hybrid. And it turns out there is a whole lot of new problems that show up when you're dealing with a human machine hybrid about how they work together and what sorts of issues arise. And those systems demand their own difficult complicated regulations. We have examples of what this looks like when regulators actually try to grapple with it, like in railroads or nuclear engineering or <clears throat> airplanes uh, or medical devices. And it's super hard, right? The human factors engineering part about nuclear reactors, about 560 pages of detailed regulations. The regulations about how a train operator should control a train involves things like how many colors you're allowed to have on the screen, where notifications have to be if they're important versus not quite as important. Things about how tall the operator is relative to the controls, just hugely detailed regulations about how to get this right so you don't have lots of screw ups that happen when humans and machines are just kind of stuck together um, willy nilly for reasons that I'm, I'm happy to talk much more about. Um, but basically like getting this stuff right is really hard. And the central message is sticking a human into the loop doesn't solve the problem. It creates a bunch of new problems. It might solve some problems, but it creates a ton of new problems and ends up with a really complicated uh, a new set of issues to deal with. So that's the basic shtick. There's more, but I'll stop there. So um, first of all, what, what you, what you say, first of all, sounds very valuable and and makes a lot of sense. I mean, that is like if you think that algorithms are good in the sense that they won't be biased in certain ways in the way that humans are, um, you know, <laughs> if you stick the human in, it's kind of corrupting the very thing you're trying to you're trying to accomplish. So that 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 strikes me as um, um, really sound and important. I was I was wondering though whether you thought that the reason why we want humans in the loop is not to catch problems associated with let's say inaccurate recommendations, but that like what matters to human beings and what matters like from a justice perspective, is that the actions can be justified on the basis of principle. And um, the thing about machine learning stuff is it's not about principle, it's about pattern matching. Um, and so 
the human being stuck in there is not to try to catch bias so much as to kind of discipline, so to speak, the outputs in a way that can be kind of justified on the basis of principle. I mean, is that a possibility or? <clears throat> yeah, so um, you, you, you said you didn't do the reading, but you've hit precisely upon the oh. complications we elaborate in part four oh, of the paper. Okay, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. So, right. so, okay. No, but I mean, please, please talk about it. That'd be great. I, I, I'm kidding. Uh, so, uh, part of what makes this really complicated is the fact that, right, it, we say it kind of as a positive matter. There are a bunch of places where law says you should have a human in the loop, like the EUAI Act says human in the loop. Uh, international law on traffic conventions say you have to have a driver capable of controlling the car. There are a bunch mm. of encouraging regimes where regulatory arbitrage says, Let's stick a human in the loop. And often it's totally unclear what the human in the loop is supposed to be doing. And so part of the piece is going through a typology gotcha, right, of yeah. what roles do we think a human might play? I gotcha, right. Because some roles, right, the really obvious role and the ones that show up in safety critical systems are like, let's fix errors, whether those are just the machine got it wrong, where it got it right for most people, but not in this particular situation, or there's some sort of bias and the humans correcting it. Those are like the obvious roles, but <clears throat> there's also uh, accountability and making sure that you can't just blame it on the machine. You have to have a computer, uh, sorry, a human involved. There's a justificatory role where someone has to explain what's right. going on to help enhance the system Which is, legitimacy. I think, what Scott was getting uh, at. There's a, right. Yeah, 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 exactly right. So, um, Similarly and unrelated, there's a dignitary role. Uh, this this tends to carry more water on the other side of the pond where they're they're big on making sure that we don't have automated systems judging us because they're not treating us equally as people. Um, and then what I think of as, as maybe the, the one of the more interesting roles from a political economy perspective uh, is a warm bodies role where I think, honestly, a lot of the time, the reason you put a human in the loop is because you don't want humans to lose their jobs. Um, and that can be pure protectionism or that can be about meaning uh, for meaningful work. And it turns out like people often don't wanna say that. Whether or not it's justifiable, like Frank Pasquale, I think has great arguments to say, look, meaningful work is important. Here's why we should think about meaningful work and making sure robots don't outsource us, sure. but. If the way you try to uh, uh, get that into practice is by saying we have to make sure there's a human that can catch errors, once the machine's better and has fewer errors than the human does, that argument becomes a lot harder to sustain. And if the reason you wanted that was to protect meaningful work, like you, you've shot yourself in the foot because you've you've tied your argument to something that's ultimately not going to be stable in the long term mixing metaphors yeah. a lot there, sorry. No, but that's a great argument. Um, no, this you. is amazing. I, I love um, part four. Part four was what I was really talking about with the topology of like, that you guys just <clears throat> do this wonderful job of like laying out all the different justifications. And of course they overlap, right? Like the warm body, I think does have a dignitary kind of component to it and justificatory component to it. And maybe a, at the beginning, a corrective component like there are pretextual justifications but i agree with you that sometimes that at the, at the core there is an emotional and kind of like component of like wanting this human in the loop i want to actually kind of maybe i know we're like jumping around a lot but i'm kind of very curious 
like in all of these different roles, we see the level of the human in the loop being in kind of an overseer capacity. And like, I think like in the justificatory sense, the corrective roles that you kind of get into the dignitary, there's an over, like, it's not perfect, but like, let's say that like most of them are kind of overseer roles. What about the role of humans as, as, uh, as, as, as like source material on which these AIs are built in like a machine learning sense. Like there is like, it's not like these things are learning on like, on like, on like other autonomous, like it's not machines learning on machines. And this is something you kind of get into in part three, but go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, one challenge of thinking about kind of what is a human in a loop, i.e. does our project have any sort of meaning is this a circumscribable concept is you know aren't there tons of humans in the loop aren't all systems hybrid systems it's not about putting a human in the loop they're always there and i think you can totally legitimately think that human in the loop refers to the fact that we have humans who are involved in generating the data and curating the data in making the system design choices you could also have a broad definition of human in the loop on the back end that refers to humans doing the evaluating of systems, kind of how they fit in, what we do ex post to figure them out. In this particular project, we focus on a pretty narrow definition of human in the loop, which is a human involved in a particular decision, whether that's decision to use an algorithmic system or go back and forth with it or rubber stamp its decision or evaluate its decision or kind of immediately appeal it like that sort of stuff right in the moment for a couple of reasons one is if we define everything as human in the loop then it becomes hard to get kind of any theoretical purchase um another is that's kind of where the rubber meets the road it's the sharp end of the socio-technical system and then the third is honestly a lot of law is focused there now and so to the extent that we're evaluating how well does law do when it focuses on that kind of immediate decisional loop and does so putting a human into the loop by mandating it or an encouraging it or whatever, like how well does that work and what are the implications of that that particular move? But totally agree with you, right? There, there are humans all the way through the system. Um, I think uh, uh, Lair and Ohm do a nice job of talking about this as do Selbst and Barokas. Like there's, there's a lot of nice work talking about the blunt end of these socio-technical systems and on ex post evaluation and contestation. Can you just, that's so awesome, the blunt versus sharpen. What, does that, what does that mean? <laughs> can you, can you, can you so, explain it? Because I would love to use that at the next socio-technical dinner party. Uh, so I will confess, I'm not, I'm not an STS guy. Uh, so, so sorry, science and technology studies guys. So I'm not going to be deeply, uh, I'm not going to be, they're going to yell at whatever, me for whatever I say right now. I'm just prefacing it, that right this, now. This is a safe space. Thank you. Uh, I think of the blunt end as being kind of the background systems blunt end, meaning that there are uh, lots of people, lots of things involved, the overall kind of systemic view taking from the world and uh, looking at this quite broadly. And then we narrow it down through the socio-technical system until we get to the point of an individual decision, often about an individual person, kind of where does this eventuate into a single moment? 
I got, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so, so the, I, I see. So the idea is the reason why it's blunt versus sharp is because you're thinking about it like triangularly or like as coming. Yeah, like a funnel. Kind of like a funnel. Right, right, yeah. Right, yeah. Okay. yeah. So think about like, okay, so tell me if this is right, Nicholson. So it's like the idea is the blunt end is kind of like the body of passive human experience and humans that the machine learns on. Like it's everything in the world that it's possibly learning on. And then slowly that like kind of like funnels down until you just have some dude that like pulls the trigger or some like some woman who's like going to be sitting next to the self-driving car and hits the button to like abort you know like, or doing something like that it is like it is the it is the it is the i think of it a little bit as like humans is passive versus humans is active i think that's a reasonable way to think about it honestly i i think the metaphor has a couple of different kind of things that it draws on one of them is this this kind of conical triangular version the other is you can think about this like a weapon like the blunt end mm -hmm. is what's on the back end and the sharp point is what actually like ends up making the difference in the moment I got you. Oh. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, this is, um, I just, I want to say again that I just really, I, I'm going to put the link to the paper in the, um, um, in, uh, in the chat, but one of the things that I'm kind of curious is about is like, where do you think that this is going to have the most impact, um, in terms of conversations right now? So we have like Rebecca's work is, a uh, top of mind, obviously, because of Ukraine and everything that's going on there. And then, but I mean, it's not like, it's like, not like your sloppy seconds or something, Nicholson. It's like, we've just gotten out of like, you know, we're like in the, like in the end of a pandemic type of thing. Like there's never been like kind of more of a call for kind of, of, of these kinds of biomedical kinds of technologies that do this type of work. And, you know, Margot and content moderation, and privacy law is like right i mean like do you do you imagine this as informing all like do you really imagine this as informing all three of those conversations equally which i think it kind of does but i'm just curious if that's like also how you guys Im imagined it yeah honestly so <clears throat> i i don't think this look our our goal of when we stepped into this project this was a, this was a fascinating project so i don't know what your your co-authors have been like but sometimes you step into a project and somebody has their idea full formed in their head and says like okay this is what we're going to do and you're going to do a and i'm going to do b and she's going to do c and that's our expertise and we know what this thing is going to look like from day one yeah and sometimes you walk into a project and you say hey i know about a and you know about b and she knows about c and like i bet there's something cool here let's think about it for a while and this was definitely that project. And honestly, you guys are all perfect for that too, because you were like flexible, creative brained people. So like, and very good at communicating. Sorry, just like knowing all of you personally, like it's just kind of a dream team. High, high IQ, high EQ. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> like, so, I mean, really, truly like, but anyways. That's very kind. Uh, so honestly, at the beginning, I really thought, and I think we all thought that we were going to come into this from different perspectives and people have been talking about humans in the loop a little bit, but in relatively narrow silos, like I'd talked about it some in medicine, but hadn't thought about the concept in general and that we were going to bring together and like Captain Planet, like our powers combined, were going to result in 
generalizable insights that actually apply across all contexts. And we hoped that there were gonna be kind of neat, clever solutions that would resolve this across lots of contexts. And I think we got a generalizable contribution, but the generalizable contribution is it's really hard to do anything generalizable in this space. <laughs> Context Sorry. matters a ton. And it's like, it's really hard and complicated. And so generalizable solutions just don't work, which is very frustrating. Like, well, so this I is, really this... wish that in part five, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just thought that actually there's a larger question here, which is whether law and tech makes any sense. I mean, in, it, I think that's the that, that that's the ultimate question. Okay, we have that conversation. First, I want to hear what you were going to say about what you wished about part five, but then I have a follow-up okay. to Scott's observation, which is I would love to just spitball that for a second. But yeah, go ahead, Nicholson. Oh, so obviously, like what I wished in part five was that we had an answer. That wasn't just like, yeah, this is really hard, and you should try to try hard to do it. Like that would have been nice. Um, it turns out we don't have that, and so eventually we we got something of uh, uh, I think some useful insights. But as I said, they're they're not clear, uh, or they're not they're not solutions. They're just here's why it's a hard problem. The link I just popped into SSRN, by the way, is uh, Rebecca Krutoff's wonderful piece with uh, BJ Ard. Uh, called structuring tech law, where honestly, there's they do a wonderful job of going through. Here's how to think about tech law as a field, uh, and whether this is really just one context or another, or the kinds of questions that we should be asking. Um, so I'll just I'll I'll so put having, that in there. So having gone that, to like uh, fifteen workshops on BJ and Rebecca's paper because we were all in the PhD program at Yale together, like <laughs> at the same time, so it got workshopped to death. Um, and uh, I will say that like this is it's a great paper, and there are things that I fundamentally disagree with. So this is what I was going to say. So like one of the things, and I'm going to challenge channel a little bit conversations. And like a person who was also in the room in these conversations, which was Molly Brady, who um, is a has been on the show too, and is a property law professor. I think you guys all know her. Um, but um, Molly kind of pushes push back and pushes back on this concept with kind of the idea that like, listen, all tech is disruptive. Is tech really truly a disruptive force? Like indoor plumbing was new technology at one point, and now it's part of the war implied warranty of habitability. Like, you know, that there are, that basically like what's disruptive about, like there's always going to be new technology. There's always going to be disruption of norms. Yeah. Is there, is it actually anything that needs to be its own kind of field, so to speak? And I find it like a compelling point to be actually kind of frank as a person who does tech law. So like, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think. Can I, can I, can I, can I, yes. let me say, just say one thing, which is that, because this is in some sense the, the, <clears throat> the thesis of the book that I'm, I finished and is being edited and, and one day w might even be published, um, uh, which is that, um, that w what's interesting about, about new technology is that, so is that, the thing I distinguish between is between down code and up code. Down code is like anything below your fingertips, you know, all the kind of technical code below your fingertips and up code is all the normy stuff above your fingertips, you know, like 
social norms, legal norms, institutional norms, industrial norms. And what's really interesting is the relationship between upcode and downcode and the way in which they interrelate, the way in which these two bodies of code relate to one another. And I think that is a principal preoccupation of tech law. In particular, the way in which you can take upcode kind of legal norms and various social norms, redirect them in certain ways to affect the technology, either how it's produced or the way it's regulated. And, and so that, that's, that's something that's transubstantive. That's something that synthetic biology has to worry about. That's something that content moderation has to worry about. It's something mm -hmm. that uh, the I law that. Or, or have to worry about. And it's not something that property law has to worry about. Um, this is not like the new building technology is not a big concern in that's real not estate. True. That's not true. So like, for example, Not I'll give you a new, perfect example of how it's totally changed new technology. Like imagine the Airbnb in the short-term rental market, which is just like, I mean, it has literally created a new use that was not feasible but at, like, at scale that like, you know, and has totally changed people's relationship with their property. That's um, a fair, that's a, that's a, by the way, that's a totally fair response. So, <laughs> I, so, so then the question becomes, the question becomes then, how do you individuate fields? How do you, um, it, it, so, but it's just that the thing that tech lawyers care about is the way in the relationship between the norm and the technical. Um, and that is a very specific concern in these fields that's transubstantive. Anyway, that was my view. I love that. I can't wait to read this book, by the way, Scott. But anyways, uh, go ahead, Nicholson. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no. I I don't have a good answer. That's a much better answer. I don't. I am bad about thinking about broad theories of tech law. I I will. I'm not good at big theory. I am really? much more of a. I don't, I certainly don't think I'm good at big theory. I think I'm much more about uh, kind of let's think about how system design interacts with practicalities on the ground. So you can think about what AI means in terms of kind of how it can see, how it shifts our conception of medicine and healing. And that's a totally interesting thing to think about, but I'm much more interested in asking the question of how do we think about writing the incentives such that when we develop AI in medical contexts, it's easily integratable in workflows in highly different medical environments such that it actually works for lots of people. Um, the second kind of question is just much more interesting to me. Uh, and I recognize that by doing that, I'm engaging in tech law without seriously thinking about what tech law is. And I don't know, I guess the I answer is there's only so much time has, to think. Yeah, I don't think that that's like, I don't know. I, I don't yeah, think I, that I'd be engaged in what tech law is, if not for the fact that I have now done so much of the descriptive work over and over again in one area about this and i am now very familiar with patterns and the patterns are emerging and the patterns 
emerge to form more of a cohesive big picture theory over time. And things also, as I go back and I spend a lot more time in the history of like, of like the press, of the history of new technologies, of the history of technology and the law, a lot of it seems familiar. Um, and some of it doesn't, but some of it seems familiar. And like a lot of the principles at the end of the day haven't changed. I was actually just talking to James Grimmelman about this because he wrote this amazing piece um, called Virtual Worlds as Comparative Law, in which it was just basically it's a 2005 piece. James is like, Leaved, left leaves all of his scholarship is like Easter eggs all over the internet. It's just like all of these things are these like great little papers that were far ahead of their time. But this is like his paper is about like how to basically regulate the metaverse. And the answer is that actually like the metaverse and becoming a completely synthetic full, full reality is actually not that hard to regulate. What's really hard is speech platforms, which fall straight into the trap that all law falls into, which is that like, no law knows how to regulate speech really particularly well. And it's something that the law struggles with all the time. And so like, actually like the metaverse by taking it out of the purely speech context is gonna be easier to regulate than kind of the, the very difficult kind of world of like regulating online speech platforms. So right, anyway, right. It's, yeah. It's gonna be like, if you show your cartoon genitalia, you get thrown out, not whether yes. you actually said those words Exactly. So much harder to figure out. That's, That's a, I mean, and like trespass yeah, but, is clear. Like right. contract <laughs> law is more clear. Like all of it is more clear. Yeah, that's and a like great all point. Of it gets, yeah. yeah, no, it's wonderful. And I and I know that is a hundred percent James. Um, and yeah. so I just think that it's a brilliant insight. And um, yeah. Um, but we should start going to questions because people are very excited about your paper. Um, and so we have a whole bunch of, um. Mateo, Dr. Doom, who might be a voice, uh, Shalish. Um, great. Awesome. Got some people coming up. Uh, Mateo, you popped up first. Why didn't you ask your question? Oh, that never happens. I uh, know. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so my question, I had a couple. I'll start with you. Actually, I just want this one. Um, my question is, if you can speak a little bit to the non-information technology related um instances of hybrid failures i'm thinking of the point in the paper where you describe um mandatory sentencing guidelines being a way to remove the human from the decision-making loop um you know people are sending others to jail to ensure you know even application of principles and rules like that and i thought that was a really interesting um thing to, to put in there because it has nothing to do with with it and I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to that side of things and how metaphors like that informed your, your broader thinking. Yeah, so uh, I, I'm gonna seize this excuse to answer a question I saw fly by in the chat a little while ago about uh, uh, something that I, I kind of left out of the description of the paper, which is the descriptive bit about how law actually does this. Uh, and so we, and I promise I'll get to the answer to your question. I promise it's relevant, even though it doesn't seem so for a moment. Um, so we, we talk about law interacting with humans in the loop and kind of a spectrum from mandating to encouraging to discouraging to uh, uh, prohibiting, right? And mandating is things like the EU AI Act or what people are arguing for killer robots or the driver's convention that you have to have a human in the loop. Um, 
prohibiting is is when they say there can't be a human in the loop. And honestly, the reason we threw in sentencing is because we couldn't find a real world example of prohibiting some the prohibiting humans in an algorithmic system, like an AI system right now. Our mm -hmm. theory was like, it's gotta be out there as a logical possibility, but we can't mm -hmm. find one. Like we don't know mm -hmm. of an AI system where they say there can't be human involvement. The closest we could come is the idea of mandatory sentencing guidelines, the goal of which was to exclude human discretion from mm -hmm. a kind of prototypical algorithmic system to the extent that you think about sentencing guidelines as an algorithm. So that's why we had that there. While mm. I'm here, I'll mention the kind of interim bits, the discouraging and encouraging bits, just because I think it's useful for the sake of completeness. Encouraging is a space where basically the law creates incentives for there to be a human in the loop when system designers are putting together their system. So an easy example of this is uh, FDA regulates medical devices and it's expensive to get a medical device on the market. If you put a human in the loop of a diagnostic system, all of a sudden, poof, it's no longer a medical device. Mm. Now, at least it, huh. if, if it's a software system, now it's at the, something at the else. Sharp end, there's, though? there's at, at the, the sharp, sharp end. end. Okay. Mm. Yep. If you've got a diagnostic software system that is going to say you have sepsis, or watch out for this patient, they're about to get sepsis, or you have diabetic retinopathy. If the software just says that, it's a medical device, AI regulates it. If the software says, here's useful information for you, physician, would you care to take a look and perhaps apply it? Then mm. FDA doesn't regulate it, it's not a medical device. So a lot cheaper to put a human in the loop. Similarly, and somebody mentioned this in the chat, liability, if we've got a liability rule that says, hey, there's a human driver, at the wheel of an autonomous car when it crashes and you make sure the human has control when things go wadgy, turns out they're gonna get sued more than the makers of the car, at least potentially. Good reason to keep a human in the loop. Uh, on the other hand, discouraging, you could imagine liability actually going in the opposite direction. So if humans get, if algorithms get better than humans at medicine, maybe eventually it'll be malpractice to overrule the recommendation of an algorithm. This is uh, Michael Frumkin, Joel uh, uh, Pino, and the late Ian Kerr made this point really uh, lovely in a paper. And Dr. So Watson, all that Dr. was a House. lot of answer that I just want an excuse to say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Interesting. Uh, do you mind if I ask a follow-up? No, of course. Uh, that was really interesting because the point about there not being any other examples about prohibiting um, humans in the loop, I actually wrote down that I couldn't think of one. I didn't find one in the paper other than that sentencing rule. But what I think is interesting there is that it seems like to me the point of a human in the loop, it's only good insofar as the human has the ability to exercise human discretion. And the law seems really interesting because as decisions get made, at least my knowledge, not being a lawyer, even a law student, um, it seems like uh, flexibility gets cut down as decisions just get made by precedent and customs getting established, so on and so forth. So I'm wondering if, I don't know, if there's, uh, if you've given any thought to how humans in the loop can be kept human, uh, how um, routines can avoid being, you know, congealed and established and, um, and that flexibility is preserved. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
so this I think is fascinating. And and here's what I here's why I want to partially disagree with the premise of the question. I think you're right that we want to make sure that humans maintain the possibility of exercising discretion if we want humans to exercise a role in which discretion is important. So if we're worried about dignity, okay. if we're worried about some forms of error correction, then- Fair enough, but that doesn't sudden, apply for the warm bodies stuff, is what you're saying. Exactly. We don't care about warm bodies. We don't care for an accountability role, frankly. If the answer is, I want somebody to sue, it doesn't matter if they have power or not, as long as I can yeah. sue them. <laughs> so uh, MC Elish has this wonderful concept of a liability sponge where the idea is that a human in the system soaks up the liability from the system and keeps it from the system designer or a moral crumple zone, which is basically the same thing, but for both liability and for moral accountability. So they're the part of the car that gets crushed so that the system designers on the back end, the blunt end of that socio-technical system, don't end up facing liability or an accountability. And for those, you don't actually care if the human can make a decision or not. It's all the same to you. Yeah, the, and the, the paper is amazing. Yeah, the, yeah the, the technical term for that are is poor people. Um, harsh. Yeah, but I mean, not not untrue. I would say corporations are like, I mean, it's also like it's passed through liability, right? Like, are we also talking about that? It's not necessarily that the liability ends in the humans. The liability places the causality with the human but ultimately with the corporation, right? Like there's some type of like, right? Instead of like the, a much more untraceable kind of like systemic part of the corporation, maybe-ish. Okay, sorry. I, if I, can I just burn this out? Just, just make a point, a jurisprudential point, which is in some sense, the human in the loop is also, in, that principle also applies in the case of what I would call upcode, that is like legal norms. So that's what the necessity defense is all about. That's what, in some sense, Carl Schmidt meant when he said, the sovereign is he who decides on the exception. The idea is that there's always somebody who, it's up to them to say, this is normal or this is abnormal. And it's not just that we want to make sure that we want humans in the technical loop. We're just like anxious about any type of automatic thing, even if it's not technical, even if it's merely institutional, um, uh, even if it's humans acting according to rules, we still want there to be a human in the loop in the sense that we think that when the rule really misfires, they can engage in corrective action. And so do you see what I'm saying? That this, this is like a general, this is, as I, the, in, in the terminology I would use, human, there's humans in the loop, both in the down code and the up code. It's just that there's this anxiety about automaticity um, and the lack of judgment in, in decision-making, human decision-making, in sorry, moral decision-making. I'm yeah, sorry, that was that. that so uh, I, I totally take. Oops. There is a slight lag, by the way, Nicholson. You're not wrong. I like I sense it now. We have sensed yeah. it for like a while, but like, but I'm sorry. That is kind of why we're kind of stepping on each other a little bit. But, but go ahead. 
Um, so I think that you're, I think that you're quite right that we have this intuition that we want the human to fix the rule when it goes wildly wrong. Part of the challenge, I think, and, and here I step back to kind of an error correction role, the most, the simplest of these roles, is that we're not great at knowing when the system has gone really wrong. And in particular, like there's there's a, a rather problematic juxtaposition in as much as the kind of thing, so we, we can imagine AI systems doing a couple of useful things. One of them is just automating things at scale and doing things more cheaply and making things more available. But we also have this dream that sometimes AI is gonna have surprising and useful results. And for inscrutable reasons, it's gonna help us do stuff in a way that we otherwise would not have thought. And the alienness and the big data of the AI is actually going to be potentially transformative, right? Treat this patient with this drug you wouldn't think you should because I've seen a billion patient hours and I can tell you it's gonna be helpful. And so the interesting, or an interesting point at least is it's really hard to distinguish that type of AI recommendation from this system has gone bonkers from the point of view of a human aiming to correct the system. Uh, and I don't know, I mean, one way to think about that is just to try things and watch and see and constantly reevaluate, which I think is ultimately the, the only way that we can get this benefit. Or maybe we say like, no, that's too scary. We don't wanna actually do it. Like if the system looks like it's gone off the rails, just believe that the system has gone off the rails. And if maybe you miss something, Thing amazing, just the cost of being careful. So uh, again, I recognize that your point was at this level, and I'm answering at like the the pointy in the moment level. But that's that's kind of where I roll. Can I? So I want to ask, and this is something that I have. I mean, just in, here's like a really great example. It's not really even AI necessarily, but like you could. I mean, I'll give the example of perfect enforcement with traffic tickets. We don't need to have any humans in the loop to give traffic tickets. We have literal machines that can measure pretty reliably people's speed like and what they're doing. And I think that there's actually this, this underdeveloped idea that we actually don't like the idea of perfect enforcement and that it is, especially in the US, kind of culturally, maybe this isn't underdeveloped, maybe I'm just not familiar with like this, like the people who talk about this, but this idea that we actually like, we actually think fairness is not is much more a standard based procedure than a rule based procedure that there's like lots of things and lots of norms backing up whatever the rule or the standard is we want there to be a contextual understanding of why like there you know if you have a baby like if you're having a baby and you have to get to the hospital and you're speeding 5 5 miles per hour like a you know and you get pulled over you can explain that they can see the baby in the back seat right like there's like this whole thing you don't have that opportunity with like a speed camera. Um, there's all of these types of things where we think that there are exceptions to the rules. Um, what I kind of am interested in is that like, it really does strike me as like, in addition to a lot of things that that kind of fetishization of fairness and the fetishization of like kind of a standard over a rule is like part of like why we stick humans in the loop um, as a corrective measure, even when we know that like, the actual enforcement or diagnosis or anything else could be much better than when there is like human reasoning involved or more reliable. Does that make sense? So like, 
I mean, it's like, it's a very irrational, irrational thing to do, like, according to math, but it seems like a very rational thing to do according to like human emotion and kind of other types of values. Um, and I'm just, I, I don't know. I just think that that, I don't know what I was, go, where I was going with that, but I just was well, thinking that that was like an interesting, that's what I was thinking of when you're talking. Right. But, but that, so, so one, one thing you could think is that we don't care just about accuracy. We care about other things and so that so that's that's one concern that you could have um but um and this is a point that you often bring up on, on the show kate which is that there's also just when we think about decision making there's the system one system two thing oh yeah going going on and so the worry maybe is is that like our need to have control is a kind of system one heuristic, but it really should give way when we have evidence that it's not as good and we should let system two kind of quash it. Um, and that's a different concern um, that, than, than the first, so just to point that out. No, no, I think that's exactly what I'm talking about. That's, I mean, it was trying not to bring in system one, system two, because I feel like I'm a, like a broken record with that. But yeah, um, sure. hold on, we have Shailish has a question and and then we're gonna wrap. So you're the, Dr. Doom didn't show up. Shailish, nice to see you. Hey, nice to see you. Fascinating discussion. I'm gonna try to make it quick. Um, so I wanted to share a couple of examples of how ML systems are built that kind of illustrate the extremes of this discussion. So the first is, I mean, the overwhelming majority of ML systems we use are supervised learning, where humans, I mean, it's the process starts with human beings providing training data, and the computers are just fast and dumb workers. So to ask whether humans should be involved or not is kind of not as, like that question doesn't make sense to me. Like humans are always involved in those kind of systems, and computers are barely involved. They're just crunching numbers. So for instance, and examples of this are machine learning for radiology. Like it starts with experts providing labeled examples that this shows cancer, this doesn't, and then machines learn to pick out the fine details. So there, I think humans will always and should always be more. But then there is a counter example that's really interesting and that's like reinforcement learning systems. So best example is alpha zero learning chess where no human was involved. It just played chess like billion times and figured it out. And it has reached a point where what AlphaZero does is hard for people to understand like why it is doing something. And there, I, I, or, or even deep learning models are impossible to debug. We can figure out what they did, like we can see what they're doing, but we don't know why they're doing it. So there, I think, it's different, like their humans cannot be involved because they don't know what the system is doing. And maybe they should be involved because they have a higher order role to play. But I wanted to sort of get your comments on this. Like I, I, I somewhat struggle to understand the debate. Like why are humans being involved even a question? So I'm, I'm gonna make three points. The first is, I totally agree with you. Humans are always gonna be involved in some of these systems. Just the question is, how much are we requiring or encouraging their involvement in the individual moment of decision, as opposed to creating the systems on the front end? The second point is, 
here, I think, sorry, I have four points. The, the second point is here, I think the baseline is really crucial because everybody thinks they're an above average doctor. Sorry, <laughs> I was malpro uh, Freudian slip. Everybody thinks they're an <laughs> above average driver, um, but most people aren't. Everybody thinks, not everybody, but lots and lots of people are going to think that they know better than the machines. And sometimes they will, and sometimes they won't. And I recognize that for my own work in this space, it's been deeply problematic to me that my assumption is that the relevant comparator is a well-trained expert physician who's actually available. And that's just wildly untrue for the vast majority of people. I know I've made that point here before, but I continue to believe it. And so the question of a human in the loop, are they going to improve the performance at the moment or not? It's very different depending on whether you're asking that from sitting at the University of Michigan Health System or a rural clinic in a lower or middle income country without a provider or substantial uh, uh, training that's available. Huge difference. The third point, and this is in decreasing order of importance, Kate, with response to your point, it's probably my mic, but I heard instead of the fetish, fetishization of uh, uh, fairness, the fetidization of fairness <laughs> and the idea of fairness resulting, right? This, this idea of our obsession with fairness leading to enabling a corrupt and biased system as indeed happens deeply in the traffic context was just so good that I couldn't. Oh, I thought it was fetidization. That is it's turning into a, a, a like a Greek No, theme. I was saying that we fetishize like justice and fairness in yes. this way that is like ridiculous, but it's a perfect pun. That'll be our next paper together, the three of us. <laughs> the, last, the last thing I wanted to point out is nobody has mentioned this yet, but this is my human in the loop, courtesy of my astonishing co-author, Rebecca Kutov. Uh, and she I, made I, that? It's been sitting there in the backdrop waiting for someone to point it out, but here it is. That first of all, that that's is, that's it actually was too literal. Right, right. Did you wait? Did um, did did she make that, or did she buy that, or like did? Knowing Rebecca, she uh, probably she, uh, found that on Etsy or someplace. I believe you are correct. Okay. <laughs> um. Wow, that is awesome. That is actually such a great. That's so lovely. It's also just like a really nice. Um, Shaylee, does that answer your question more or less? I think so. I mean, I there there aren't clear answers to this. Like, I know how broad this question is, and there are areas where we can't. Like, of course, we want human involved when it's an auto landing system, like when plane is landing, because we the system is designed to look at some parameters, not all parameters. If there is a you know, if the runway is closed or something, like you know, it may not be modeled into the AI that of that system. So yeah, you always. That's one extreme, but then there are also counterexamples where you, humans can't figure out what's going on. So I get it, but yeah, I, it's fascinating. Thank you so much. What, so can I just say, the, the, so this is the project that I've been I've been working on, the AI project, which is literally trying to figure out what the machine learning model is thinking. So the thing is, is that you know, so the problem is, is that you train the model on all these instances, and it has all these nodes and these weightings and you look at it and you're like, what does that mean? Like, it's just, it's inscrutable. And so that's what Shaylee was saying. 
like like there's no um there's no way to know what's going on here that it, it's just that that's not necessarily true you can interrogate the model um and so one of the things that we're doing is trying to so we have theories of intention for example like how to determine whether somebody intends to you know uh go to the refrigerator or something and we have all these kind of tests that philosophers devise so you could actually operationalize these tests write code for these tests and then interrogate the model and then say like in these counterfactual situations would you do this or would you do that so it's actually turning out that we it's working so far so um it's it's kind of a kind of cool combination of um uh like philosophy, you know, how do we think about the propositional attitudes and can we write code which then operationalizes this and then queries the the database, uh, the, the, the model, and then tries to come out with, oh, you know, these weightings, th that's actually encoding what we care about, which is the intention to go get a, go to the refrigerator or something. Um, anyway, so I just, I throw that out as a, as no, I love that. I've been playing with it. So can I ask one question? Because I feel like we're tiptoeing up to it before we stop and we got like we have to end. But do you guys worry about the singularity? Like we've been talking about like kind of this entire time about kind of humans in the loop and that there will always be some type of human in the loop and all of these things. Um, Nick Bostrom, uh, like a famous and somewhat controversial philosopher in this area is like and a number of people actually like there's a whole realm of people that I don't particularly subscribe to are very concerned about this black ball kind of Nick Bostrom's theory is like a black ball theory that it's like if we just keep plucking from an urn there are a million white balls but there will be one black ball that like just is the thing that ends the universe and like or like or human life as we know it and like we will pluck that out and there's no way of knowing when that will happen and it will happen eventually if we draw enough balls from this urn I mean, that's just like his like very philo philosophical model on this kind of very new age problem which is you know I feel like it's an Aesop's fable or something actually <laughs> But I'm just kind of curious, like, do you guys subscribe to that? Or do you just think that like in our lifetimes, it's not really a, like, a, like a conversation worth worrying about? Really quick, five, so, 30 seconds on the singularity. <laughs> I can't speak for my co-authors. I'm not worried about it. I'm convinced by Ryan Kahlo's view, which is uh, there are lots of problems in the here and now and stressing out about the singularity is not helping us solve the problems in the human now. There are lots of things that are more likely to kill us in the short term than a singularity. And I don't remember who said it, which makes me sad, but the uh, but one computer scientist has put it as the problem isn't that AI is going to be super smart and end the world. The problem is that it's stupid and it already control. Sorry, it's not going to be super smart and control the world. It's that it's stupid and it already does. I think that's Bruce and Schneier. I'm more worried. I think that's probably right. And so okay, I'm sorry. much more worried about getting things right in the moment than I am about a singularity killing us all in a few decades. Now, if I'm dead in a few decades, feel free to yell at me. Okay. Well, I, 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 um, my own view is, of course, a singularity is going to happen. I mean, it, it obviously is going to happen. Like, if ever if humans are doing their job, they're going to get like make ever more intelligent and powerful things, and it's going to get out of hand, and that's just the way it is. And that's this is like you know chimpanzees talking about like possible humans. Um, um, it's 
of hmm. course it's going to happen like nothing, but like, that's, what are we going to do? Not like make the next iPhone. Yeah, um, right. you I, know. I know, that's actually, I actually think that I, I agree with both of you completely. I agree with Ryan Kalos and like as channeled through Nicholson's kind of pragmatic viewpoint of like the things to focus on in the now. And then the point that Scott is making, which is that like, it's an inevitable, um, it is inevitable in an, an inevitable part of like human progress, uh, unfortunately. And like, I just kind of like, like, why, why worry about it until it's like a thing that you worry about uh or and then when you have to worry about it you can blame nicholson um so <laughs> um we have to wrap this was a lovely way to spend an hour thank you friend in your plum jacket and i thank feel you. very like very lovely to see you um so fun to have this paper sad we couldn't have margo and rebecca on but i feel like we said wonderful things about them so that was a good second place we did uh, yeah and um everyone check out the paper which i will post once again in the chat um and download it so that you can increase their ranking um and uh oh scott raise an eyebrow like you're not above pandering for, oh like, no 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 i bet by the way no that wasn't raising an eyebrow about that i oh. was actually raising an eyebrow uh I, 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 somebody who's Is that coming Ganglia, Let me, Nicholson? oh oh no yeah no um uh it was something that uh i love that, it yeah it's somebody said something in the chat and i and you were laughing at that okay yes well i wasn't laughing i was i was um <laughs> uh, eyebrow um, raising yeah, um so. did you wear the neuro bow tie for me i love like um sorry i was just was like <laughs> it's such a like uh i you know this is like a really funny thing um just as an aside about you and I that we have this in common, Nicholson, is that I think the reason we both did bio and were drawn to bio at like uh, at a like undergrad and graduate level is like I really do love the systems of it. I love mapping the systems of bio. Like I just think that the natural world and the systems of them are just like the most. It's like a like it's like I I still to this day do this like all the time, and I think that people know that. But like yeah, I just it's a piece that I miss a lot, and it's always fun to have you on and like because it's a similar mind. So is Scott. He does this. He's like really into mushrooms. Yeah, um, I, 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 that's right. So this is um, like you, Nicholson, we have a mind meld and we think about the world the same way. And then Scott, too, he's interested in mushrooms. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. OK. Wow. <laughs> anyway. Um, this was awesome. Um, this we was will lovely. Be back Thank you so much. On Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I don't know who the guest is. Uh, it will be Genevieve and Ben, who will hopefully be over COVID at that point. Um, and um, until then, we don't have fun anymore. But we 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 we, we not only can, but we must have a human in the loop. In like anyway. the literal loop. Yeah. I, <laughs> that's also such a classic Rebecca gift. It's so perfect. Anyways, uh, I'll see you guys later. Bye. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye.